I know it's a bit of a uh, big weekend for uh, for um, for us here in Melbourne as it's the uh, footy grand final, and so I definitely appreciate the extra effort that uh, was taken to come out here. I know there's always a there's always a temptation to kind of prep yourself for the big for the big uh, grand final. Um, I know, especially in uh, in our church, there's a bit of a divide. We've got one family who are uh, West Coast Eagles fans, and we've got another family, and probably more than one family who are uh, Collingwood supporters. But uh, we wish the both of you good luck today, and um, we're very glad to see you here. Um, as you know, we are um, in the midst of a series called Seeing with New Eyes. Uh, last week, we covered the topics of how to discover truth and uh and exploring the idea of suffering. And so today what we're going to do is explore the topic of identifying Jesus as the Son of God, what it means to identify and come to the belief of Jesus as the Son of God. And in the next session, we're going to talk about what those implications are as the Bible claims that he died for us. He died for humanity to save humanity. And so we're going to be exploring that idea. So... Uh, just a couple of reminders. Uh, there is a question box uh, out in the uh, front entryway, and so there's going to be a little clear, I say little, it's a very big clear box. Um, I've probably overestimated the number of questions that are going to go into the box, but there's a big clear uh, plastic container box, and the lid has like blue cars and trucks. But if you have questions about the topics, feel free to just jot them down on, on pieces of paper, Drop them into the question box, and I will answer those questions um, in the subsequent sessions. So in this session, we're going to be talking about Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's a central figure in the Bible. His teachings have birthed religions. His cause has inspired billions. His life is surrounded by miracle and mystery. And today, we're going to talk about why Jesus still influences us today. So first I want to talk about Jesus as a historical figure. Um, here, let me just back up a few slides here. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> it's okay, it's not your fault. Okay, Jesus as a historical figure. Um, I'm going to be looking at what a couple uh, non-Christian historians of Jesus' day said about Jesus. And I think it's interesting to see what his contemporaries said and the fact that there is record of a man named Jesus who was the leader of this uh, Jewish sectarian group, if you will. And they wouldn't have identified themselves as a Jewish sectarian group, but they were Jewish. Um, so here's a couple historians, Pliny the Younger, who is a first century Roman historian, and then we're going to look at Tacitus, who is a first century Roman historian. So um, <clears throat> here is what Pliny the Younger writes. He says, They, the Christians, were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day. When they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God and bound themselves by a solemn oath, not to practice any wicked deeds, but never to commit fraud, theft, or adultery. Tacitus also writes, hence to suppress the prevailing rumor, he, Nero, transferred the guilt upon fictitious criminals and be subjected to most exquisite tortures, 
those people who for their detestable crimes were already in truth universally abhorred and known to the vulgar by the name of Christians. The founder of this name was Christ, one who in the reign of Tiberius suffered death as a criminal under Pontius Pilate, imperial procurator of Judea. So those are a couple historians' accounts of this person named Jesus. Now I want to shift our focus and look at some archaeological evidence that supports Jesus as a historical figure. In 1961, there was a man by the name of Antonio Frova, and he was excavating near this theater in Caesarea, and he found an artifact, and that artifact is called the Pilate Stone. And here's why this is significant. On this stone, there's an inscription that says, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. So the Pilate stone mentions the very person who tries Jesus. And, and of course, according to the New Testament account, there's consistency here. And as archaeologists studied this Pilate stone, they date the stone to be made around 26 to 37 AD, which happened to be around the time of Christ. So we have non-Christian historians who give an account of Jesus' death, and then we have artifacts of archaeology surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus. Here's another interesting bit of um, archaeology. They call this Caiaphas's ossuary, and an ossuary is simply a box filled with bones. In 1990, there was construction workers bulldozing a burial cave and found an ossuary box, or they found an ossuary, and the box was highly decorated from the bones of someone who was elderly and clearly distinguished um, as the box is quite ornate. Now, you can determine the age of an individual based on a couple things. Firstly, cranial structures. <clears throat> there are lines on your skull, and as you get older, those lines become less prominent. And I'm kind of smiling to myself because we have some med medical professionals in the room, so I need to make sure that I have my uh, facts correct here. There are also um, things in your bones called osteons, and your bones have tiny tubes containing blood vessels. And apparently younger people have fewer but larger osteons, and older people have smaller osteons, but uh, they have more osteon fragments. And so experts can estimate between 5 to 10 years of someone's age by looking at their bones. And so as they looked at this ossuary, they found that there was uh, the bones of a male who was in his 60s. Now, what's interesting is that the name inscribed on this box is Joseph Caiaphas. Now, the New Testament refers to Caiaphas' family by name. It refers to Caiaphas, the priest, by name. So in Matthew 26, verse 3, it says, At that time, the leading priests and elders were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, what's interesting is that Josephus, who is a first-century Jewish historian, is considered to be an extremely reliable, extra-biblical uh, source for um, history. And when he refers to Caiaphas, the high priest, he uses Caiaphas' first name. And in his writings, he, he calls Caiaphas Joseph Caiaphas. And so what's happened as a result of this is that this ossuary is actually kept in the Israeli Museum in Jerusalem. Um, both Jews and Christians alike um, look at this box, and they kind of they see this as a confirmation of the fact that 
um, there was an individual named Caiaphas who existed. And of course, from the biblical account, it really supports that story of Jesus. So here's the question. If there's historical data supporting the existence of Christ, if there are bits of archaeology, and I've listed two things. There's actually a, a lot of archaeology that supports the story of uh, the Gospels. But yeah, if there are historians who accept the um, historicity of Jesus as a figure, and if there's archaeology that supports the story of the Gospels, then how do we come to the point where we believe that Jesus is divine? Because there's a leap in logic, there's a leap in belief. What evidence do we have that Jesus was resurrected? So today I want to share two points. The first one is that the Jesus of yesterday still influences us today. There are billions of people that claim to believe in the resurrected Christ. There's an article in the New York Times that I'd like to look at. Um, it was written by Peter Steinfels um, in 1988, and here's what he says. Today, such doubts are reinforced by a widespread understanding of science that rejects in principle any event appearing to depart from the ordinary patterns of nature and by the conclusion of, of at least some Christians that the scriptures are not and never were meant to be objective historical records. And in summary, Peter is saying there are a lot of reasons to doubt the stories that are written in the Bible. There are a lot of reasons to doubt that miracles actually happened. He continues on. On one point, however, virtually all scholars agree. Shortly after Jesus was executed, and he can't even, he's not going to use the word resurrected, but Shortly after Jesus was executed, his followers were suddenly galvanized from a baffled and cowering group into people whose message about a living Jesus and a coming kingdom preached at the risk of their lives and eventually changed an empire. So something happened after the death of Jesus that gave birth to a movement that would change the world. Do you know that Christianity is the world's largest religion? 31% of the world claim to believe in Jesus. Christianity is also the largest religion in Australia. So there are over 12 million people who claim to be Christian on the census report. And this is very, very significant because if you look at the number of people who tick, I'm an atheist, there are only about 34,000 people that say, I'm an atheist. And what that, what that shows is that there are very few people percentage-wise in Australia who are saying God is not real. Now, there's a massive number of people. I think it's like uh, 6 million people who are saying, I'm unchurched. I don't belong to any religion. But notice they're deliberately ticking unchurched as opposed to atheist. And that's very significant. And what that's saying is as a whole in Australia, the majority of people are saying, yeah, there's a good possibility that God exists, but then, or excuse me, there's a, there's a large number of people who are saying there's a possibility that God exists. There's a larger number of people who are saying, I believe in Jesus. Something happened in history that triggered this chain reaction of people to then believe in this movement. 
Scholars are skeptical when it comes to miracles, but when it comes to the effects of the resurrection, it's undeniable. Here's the second point that I want to highlight when it comes to belief in Christ. If we accept Jesus as a historical and good person, we then have to uh, accept the claims that he makes about himself. If Jesus is a historical and good person, we then have to accept the claims that he makes about himself. I shouldn't say accept. We need to consider the claims that he makes about himself. C.S. Lewis presents a trilemma. And uh, last week we talked about a trilemma of suffering. Today we're going to talk about a trilemma of Christ. And C.S. Lewis says this. There are three options when it comes to Jesus. Either he was a liar. In other words, he knew that what he was saying was false. He was manipulating people. He was tricking people. And he was just trying to get his agenda across. So he deliberately changed or he deliberately lied to the masses and he died for it. So Jesus was either a liar or he was a lunatic. In other words, he didn't know that what he was saying was false. He genuinely believed it was the truth. It was just, he's crazy. Then there's a third option. Jesus was telling the truth. So notice what Jesus actually says about himself. Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 to 17. The context of this conversation is that Jesus wants to question his disciples about whether or not they understand his identity. So here's the conversation. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Simon here says, Jesus, you are divine. You are not a mere mortal. And Jesus says, correct. And in that statement of affirmation, Jesus is confirming two points. One, he's claiming to be immortal. Two, he's claiming that God is real and God is personally involved in revealing who Jesus is to humanity. See, Jesus spent his time convincing the people of Israel of this truth in hopes that they would follow him. Jesus was hoping that people would come to know his identity, follow his teachings, and be influenced by him in every aspect of their lives, from how they treated their spouses to how they handled their business to how they managed their finances. He wanted the message that he had to completely transform humanity. Jesus' followers after the resurrection traveled the whole world sharing the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, if this claim is false, then we can just kind of disregard this, and Jesus is not a good man. But if this is true, then we then are faced with that question, do I accept or reject this? So the second half of the talk today I want to invite you to explore the idea of believing in Jesus. To start, I want to acknowledge there are very good reasons why people don't believe. There are genuine challenges to faith, and we talked about a couple of them last week. Uh, There's a genuine challenge of wondering whether or not the Bible that we have is a credible source. There's a genuine challenge of 
of reconciling the fact that there's so much suffering in the world, and yet we serve a powerful God. And uh, the Bible says that God is powerful. So how do you reconcile those two things? It, it's a real experience where people come to church and they are hurt by the church. The very institution that's designed to minister to people is the very institution that actually hurts people. That is a genuine reason to doubt whether or not God is the real thing and Jesus is the real thing. So there are many times when Christians, or excuse me, there are many times, and the list goes on and on, there are good reasons why people doubt. So how does one develop faith in the face of these challenges? Now, there are two things that people encounter when, while exploring God. The first thing that they encounter is that which is unexplainable. And this is what I mean by that. There are questions, doubts, and concerns that you just, we can argue and talk and debate and study for eternity, and there will always be someone who is unsatisfied with the discovery of that answer. And the reality is, Non-Christians, new Christians, and mature Christians all have doubts. We all have questions that have not been answered. The difference is how we manage those doubts. So there's that which is unexplainable. Then there's that which is undeniable. And what I mean by that is there are experiences, moments of divine providence where you know God worked in your life. And you reflect upon your day, and I call them God moments, where you look back and just realize God has been there, and he did something special for you personally on that day. There are moments where miracles happen. There are moments where we experience peace, and it's unexplainable. Peace in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, and there are just times where you just realize God is here with me. There's undeniable truth, moments where you're reading scripture and something in the Bible just resonates with your heart, where you realize this is the real thing. This is true. There's a story in the Gospels of a man named Nathaniel, and he's looking for the Messiah. He's looking for the Son of God, the Savior of humanity, and he's confronted with doubt. And here's the account of his interaction with Jesus. I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 1, verses 43 to 49. John chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 43 to 49. For those of you who have those white Bibles um, in front of you or next to you, it's page 852. Page 852. John chapter 1, and we're starting in verse 43. So here's how it goes. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, come follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. So Philip goes to his friend Nathaniel, and he says, We found the Messiah, the son of God. He's from the town of Nazareth. And if you look at verse 46, notice how Nathaniel responds. He says, Nazareth, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Now, 
Nathaniel here is giving an objection. He's saying Nathaniel, or excuse me, he's saying Nazareth is a crummy town. How can anything good come from that town? Now, if I were Philip, the natural tendency would then be to argue over how good Nazareth is. No, 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 no. Haven't you seen the bridge that goes over the creek? Haven't you seen the nice parks? Like, Nazareth is a great town. And then they would just argue until the cows come home. Is Nazareth a worthy place for Jesus to be born or Jesus to be raised? Yes or no? There are moments when we face unexplainable truths about God. Notice here in Job chapter 11, verse 7, Job asks the question, can you solve the mysteries of God? Can you discover everything about the Almighty? And this may seem unfair because God wants us to accept Jesus, but the road to belief and faith is littered with roadblocks of doubt. But if you think about major decisions that we make in our lives, every major decision we make is also coupled next to significant uncertainty. Here are a couple examples that I thought of. The first one is a relationship. For those of you who are married or thinking about marriage, how do you know that person that you're going to commit the rest of your life to or that person that you have already committed your life to is the right person? How do you know they're not going to break your heart in the future? How, how do you know that your, your, your relationship is going to be successful? How do you know you're not going to meet somebody better later on down the road? Like, what happens if you're at your wedding reception and you see the person who's bringing in the catering and you're like, you're the right person. Like, what certainty do you have? Then there are those of us who pick our career choices, right? How do you know that you're going to be successful at your job? How do you know that your career is even going to be relevant five, ten years down the road? What about major purchases like oh, uh, a major purchase, purchase like a house? How do you know if the market is going to hold up? How do I know if I'm going to be able to afford this mortgage later on down the road? Oh, mommy got you in time. <laughs> See, what effect will locking my savings to a mortgage do to my life? And there's great uncertainty whenever we make a major life decision. But my point is that we make that decision in the face of that difficulty and that uncertainty. And I'm just saying, you can't separate doubt and concern, but you can manage how you move forward. And I want to talk about that. In many cases, the unexplainable objections we face in our daily lives are not answered before we move forward. We're not certain what the housing market's going to do. We're not 100% sure where our career is going to head. We're not sure what's going to happen in our relationships. Notice how Philip deals with Nathaniel's objection. If you go back to the text in verse 46, he says, come and see for yourself. See, Philip doesn't answer Nathaniel's objections about Nazareth. He just says, come and meet Jesus. I love this idea. You know, whenever we have doubts and concerns, if we prioritize that what we're trying to seek out in the face of that difficulty, it doesn't mean that difficulties go away. Those difficulties and those questions are still there. And it's good for us to ponder those moments. But if we prioritize that what we're trying to seek, it won't get in the way. Those doubts and concerns won't keep us from experiencing what we're trying to experience. And today, I'm inviting you to experience Jesus.
Notice how Jesus approaches this skeptical Nathaniel. Verse 47. As they approached, Jesus says, Now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. I love this verse because Jesus, because of what Jesus says about Nathaniel. Jesus says, here is someone who is full of integrity. There is no guile. There's no dishonesty in you, Nathaniel. And what Jesus is doing is he is affirming Nathaniel's intellectual honesty. Jesus is affirming the fact that Nathaniel's not going to fake his faith. Nathaniel has genuine questions and concerns, and he says, here's a man who has no guile. Here's a genuine, genuine seeker. Notice verse 48. The interaction continues. How do you know about me? Nathaniel asked. And Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Verse 49. Then Nathaniel explained, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Nathaniel comes to realize the identity of Jesus. He calls him the son of God. And notice here, Nathaniel doesn't bring up Nazareth. He's not like, so Nazareth. Like, he just comes to the realization Jesus is divine. We don't know if Nathaniel's questions about Nazareth were ever answered. Nazareth was probably still a crummy town, but it just didn't bother him as much. Nathaniel became a follower of Jesus with his question because in that moment he had a personal undeniable encounter with Christ. Now I want to hasten to say the unexplainable it's important. I'm not saying disregard the unexplainable. We need explanation. But what I'm saying is there's a way to put on hold the unexplainable so that we can experience the undeniable. And in the context of a relationship with the undeniable, the unexplainable doesn't get in the way of that experience. See, there are undeniable facts about God. For example, the message of Jesus should have died in the first century. If you kill the leader of the movement, you kill the movement. And yet, it's become the biggest religion in the world. Generation after generation from every corner of the world, people are coming to the knowledge of the fact that Jesus is resurrected. And there isn't like this. It's interesting. When you actually listen to the testimonies of people who are saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus, there's a lot of consistency across the board, regardless of where in the world you come from. And it's not like there's this secret website that people are going to to get cheat sheet answers of how to create this false testimony. All right, I'm going to say A, B, C, D, E, and then they'll know that I'm a Christian. Here's another fact that is undeniable. There is a God-sized hole in the heart of humanity. And this cannot be filled by money, sex, or any pursuit of happiness. People everywhere are chasing after something. And every single day, people are encountering a Christ that fills that God-sized hole. Here's one more undeniable fact. As humans, we live our lives in a cycle of pattern of selfishness and self-destruction. The undeniable truth is that the love of God has the power to give us freedom from that pattern of disappointment and pain and provides the promise of peace. See, there are good reasons for doubt. 
For me, doubt comes from fixating on the unexplainable and losing sight of the undeniable. Personally, I doubt when I forget what God has done and I start focusing on what I think God should be doing. I doubt when I lose sight of what I've experienced, what I've read to be, uh, what I've read and know to be true, and instead I think about all the things that everybody else says about my religion. When I start focusing on that which is unexplainable, then I lose sight of that which is undeniable. And what I want to suggest is that if we're honest, we make life decisions based on the undeniable in this space, not in this space. See, when it, comes to our re- when it comes to our relationships, we make those decisions because we love the other person. That's why we commit to them. So I invite you to prioritize the undeniable. Seek a relationship with God. I'm not saying wipe away the unexplainable. I'm just saying in the context of that relationship, let the relationship inform the unexplainable. Read books. See what great th- uh, thinkers are saying. Really wrestle with those ideas, but don't let those don't let that wrestling keep you from encountering Christ. So there are a couple tips on how to seek a relationship before I want to end this session. In John chapter 14, I'm going to invite you to go to John chapter 14. We're in John chapter 1 at the moment. Page 867. John chapter 14, and we're going to start at verses 6 and 7. Page 867, verses 6 and 7. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus gives this assurance that he is truth. He is life and he can be known. That's an incredible, incredible promise. And here are the implications. If you look at verses 10, 21, and 23, I'm just going to read the three verses here. And I love I love these three verses. I'll tell you why in just a moment. Here's verse 10. Don't you believe that I (coughs) am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Verse 10. Here's verse 21. Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them. And I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. What an incredible promise Jesus is saying. Keep my words, I'm going to reveal myself to you. Have you ever wondered, what does Jesus look like? What does he look like? And here he's saying, I'm going to reveal myself to you. Follow my word. 23, similar idea. Jesus replied, all who love me will do what I say. My father will love them and we will come and make our home with each of them. You know, there comes a point in your Christian experience, in your seeking, in your journey, where you will come to sense the abiding presence of God in your very life. You know, a lot of times we spend time 
defending the Bible and its credibility. We spend so much time debating the existence of God using science and philosophy. But Jesus here says, just follow my instructions. If you encounter me, then the Bible and God are real. Pretty straightforward. Follow the instructions. It's like we're so busy defending straw man arguments that we're not looking at the actual content and living the actual content itself. And here's this almost challenge or this test that Jesus himself puts out. Jesus says, follow my instructions. If you encounter me, the Bible and I are real. So when we prioritize what Jesus prioritizes, instead of creating apologetics, we find a genuine encounter with God. If you look at verse 13 and 14, there's some additional instruction here. And here's the second tip. So the first tip was live out the words of Jesus. You will experience the work of God. Live out the words of Jesus. You will experience the work of God. Here's the second tip. Verses 13 and 14. The Bible says, or Jesus says here, you can ask anything in my name and I will do it so that the son can bring glory to the father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Jesus says, pray in my name. There we go. Jesus says, pray in my name and you will encounter me. Don't pray with your agenda in mind. Pray a life, or excuse me, don't pray with your agenda in, in mind. Pray with my agenda in, in mind. You know, we can spend a whole lifetime asking God for things. God, please give me uh, a wife. Please give me a nice house. Please bless my business. Please bless my finances. And you can keep praying these things, spending a whole lifetime treating God like a genie. It's kind of like you rub the lamp, and then you get three wishes, and then something happens. But it, you, can, you, can, you can pray your whole life like that and not encounter God. And here the specific instruction is Jesus says, pray in my name. Pray with my agenda in mind. Prayer is about prioritizing God. And when we are able to prioritize God, God then says, I will prioritize you. You pray in my name, I'll do anything you want. And what he's communicating here is a very relational truth. You know, when you get to know somebody, the more you trust them, the more you're willing to give them. Um, this is a weird phenomenon. We have the keys of multiple people's homes in our possession. And multiple people here have the keys to our home. And that's just not like a very normal thing that you do where you pass out keys to your home to other people. And, and the point here is like, hey, I trust you're not going to rob me. So here's the keys to the most valuable things that I possess. The reality is, hey, if I get locked out, please help me out, right? <laughs> That's the real purpose of giving the keys. But I'm, what I'm saying is, in the context of a trusting relationship, there is this said agreement, I'm going to do for you whatever you want because I trust you. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to. He's saying, you can encounter me in this discipline of prayer. Here's one more verse that I want to read for you. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13. There's an incredible promise of how to find God. It says here, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. So notice here, Jesus says, You give me all of your heart and you search for me, 
I'll give you all of your heart's desires. It's an incredible, incredible promise because he knows when there is a healthy relationship that's established, you will honor me with that which I give you rather than use it for yourself. So in summary, when it comes to encountering Christ, I encourage you, hold on to the unexplainable. Read books, explore ideas, and at the same time, prioritize the undeniable. Pray, seek God's word, seek a genuine connection with Jesus. Ask that question to to Jesus in prayer. I have genuine doubts and concerns, but I don't want those things to keep me from knowing you personally. So God, please reveal yourself to me. You will come to know the God of the universe and Jesus Christ, his son. May God guide you as you continue to seek him. At this time, we're going to take a short break. There's some refreshments. Please feel free to grab some and uh, please get to know each other. It's a great time to just um, meet new people in this environment. And so uh, we invite you to some refreshments and, uh, and, and some um, uh, social interaction. <laughs> so please join us. Last time, I think it was kind of hard to gauge when it was the right time to come over. Uh, there's going to be a timer, and so if you can just keep an eye on the timer, and then we'll go around and usher you back here for the second session. Thank you.